Well, friends, we are in the second of five sermons this morning in the book of Jonah. We're going to be spending the summer, at least for my portion of time in the pulpit this summer, in the Minor Prophets. Several sermons through Jonah, three sermons through Habakkuk, two through Obadiah. So prepare yourselves for those, should the Lord give us those Lord's days over the coming weeks. I'm going to do a little bit of overview material again this week. We did some of this last week in the first sermon on Jonah, but I want to continue to give us an appropriate sense of the historical setting, and I also want to go ahead and speak to some of the things that are often raised whenever the book of Jonah is considered in a setting like this. We are very familiar with the story of Jonah mainly for one reason, and that's because of the great fish that swallowed the prophet. Because of the Bible storybooks that many of us grew up around, because of the flannel boards that we all were partakers of in Sunday school, whatever it may be, we know about Jonah and the fish, or maybe Jonah and the whale, as it has been told to us before. But as we always want to ask ourselves, particularly when we are very familiar with passages of Scripture, we want to ask, did we get the point of Jonah? Did we understand what the book of Jonah is about as we've considered it in past seasons? Did we get the point as to how Jonah fits into redemptive history? Did we understand what it teaches us about God, about his character, about his plan of redemption? Did we understand what it teaches us about ourselves as God's people and about God's ways with us? On the book of Jonah in general, you know the great fish. There's also the piece where God causes a tree to sprout up overnight and then kills that same tree in a night. There's some remarkable stuff in this book. And so because of that, there have been various approaches to how we should interpret this book. As I stated last week, I'll state again, we should understand Jonah to be historical and prophetic narrative. It is history. And we approach it that way. Jewish tradition regards the narrative as history, and even more importantly, Jesus clearly referred to the account of Jonah as history during his earthly ministry. Regarding the fish and Jonah being in its belly for three days, this is one of countless examples of extraordinary providence in the scriptures. With all due respect, if we're going to wig out over a fish swallowing a prophet and him living in the belly of a fish for three days, there are countless other things in the Bible that we would need to jettison as well. We're talking about the Lord, the one true holy and living God who is in the heavens and does everything he pleases. He spoke the world into existence from nothing. There was nothing and he speaks and this is what we have. He parted the Red Sea. Just because we're familiar with that story does not make it less remarkable. Parted the sea. And his people walked through it as on dry land. He fed his people with bread from heaven in a wilderness. He caused quail to fall out of the sky, so many of them that they were piled for three feet high for miles. He caused a donkey to speak to a prophet. He caused the sun to stand still for an entire day so that the Israelite army could continue its conquest. He, of course, caused a virgin to conceive. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people with two loaves and a few fish. He healed the lame. He gave the blind their sight. He gave the deaf their hearing. He gave the mute abilities to speak. He raised Lazarus from the dead with a word. And we're here today because his tomb is empty. We need not trip up over a great fish swallowing a prophet. Our God does everything that he pleases and he has made the world and governs it usually through his ordinary providence. But as our confession states, in his ordinary providence, God makes use of means 
though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. Jonah and the fish is such a moment. So if you've not already opened your Bibles to Jonah, please do so. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 today. I'm going to make a few very brief comments about the historical setting. I want to keep these things in front of us because I want us to rightly understand the historical moment. I want us to rightly understand in particular why Jonah feels the way that he does about God calling him to Nineveh to preach a message of repentance there. Jonah, as we considered last week, was a prophet in the 8th century BC. He was from the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. And just by way of quick review, after King Solomon, so you have David and then Solomon, because of Solomon's sin, God split the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. So when you hear northern kingdom, we're talking northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city of Samaria. So this is where Jonah is prophesying. He's prophesying during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and this was a time of territorial expansion in Israel, reacquiring land, extending borders back to what they were under David and Solomon. And it was a time of material prosperity in the northern kingdom. And yet at the same time, this was a time of social, moral, and religious decline. The spiritual state of God's people was not well. Two other prophets lived at the same time that Jonah lived and were prophesying as well in the northern kingdom. Their names are Hosea and Amos. And these two prophets were speaking into this corruption and wickedness that existed amongst God's people. And amongst other things, they had said that because of Israel's sin, God would judge them by means of the Assyrian Empire. And we know that that judgment would eventually come as Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because in the book of Jonah, the Lord commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach there, to preach of the Lord's coming judgment upon them unless they repent. Nineveh, as many know, was the last capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So in other words, the capital city of the very empire that would conquer Israel, that presented this great threat to Israel, is where Jonah is called to go and preach. And he is not favorable to that call. Let's look now to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be looking specifically today at verses 4 through 16 of Jonah 1, but I'm going to begin in Jonah 1 and verse 1 and read from there. This is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you 
that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. So my plan this morning is to give us five points and a conclusion, just for our consideration. Five points and a conclusion. Before I get to point one, though, let me give you just a very brief 30,000-foot overview of the book of Jonah. The Lord commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah flees from God's presence. That was last Sunday. The Lord pursues Jonah and will not be thwarted in his purposes. That's today. The Lord is going to preserve Jonah in the belly of a fish. The Lord is going to bring about repentance in Jonah, and Jonah will give thanks to God. The Lord will deliver Jonah from the fish and commission him to go to Nineveh again. Jonah will go. He will preach. Nineveh will repent. And Jonah does not like it. And then finally, the Lord teaches Jonah a lesson about divine love and divine compassion. So that's the book of Jonah, 30,000 feet. But five points and a conclusion for our time today. Point one, very simply, I want to consider the narrative. I want to walk our way through it. We're going to make some observations. Make sure that we're familiar with what's going on. So here we go. You can put your eyes on the text beginning particularly in verse 4 and follow along as we consider this together. Jonah, we know, had gotten on a ship to head to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord, right? He's sailing literally in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He's trying to go across the Mediterranean Sea. He does not want to go to Nineveh and preach. He is seeking to flee from God's own presence. But God, beginning in verse 4, takes action. He hurls a great wind on the sea. There are some great verbs in this account. God hurls a great wind on the sea. Things are rough to the point that the ship might just break. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Perfect Storm, but that's kind of what's in my brain as I'm reading this. Where like the ship is just so beaten by the waves that it might just break. The structure would be compromised. The mariners, for their part, are afraid. And remember, these dudes are professional sailors. And so this is clearly very rough water, very frightening conditions. Dudes are crying out to their own gods and they're hurling cargo overboard, doing anything that they can to keep the ship afloat. Jonah, for his part, had gone down inside the ship and was asleep. And the captain comes to him and is like, bro, what are you doing? You need to get up and you need to call out to your God because we're all going to die. And then the sailors, Jonah is clearly with them at this time, the sailors determine that they're going to try to figure out why all of this is happening. Their assumption is that somebody has done something to bring this about. And so they cast lots. Think of it like casting dice in our context. This was common in the ancient world as a way of discerning the will of the gods. And of course, if you've read your Old Testament, you understand that lots were cast in ancient Israel as well. And here, in this instance, as is always the case, the Lord accomplished his purposes. We're mindful of Proverbs 16.33 that reads this way, the lot is cast into the lap. But every decision, it's every decision, is from the Lord. So the lot falls on Jonah. The sailors, they say to him, tell us who is responsible for this. And oh, by the way, what do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? He answers. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made everything. 
He made the sea and the dry land. And the sailors at this point are very afraid. And they ask Jonah, what have you done, man? What have you done? They ask this in particular because they knew why Jonah was on the boat. He had told them, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And now he's saying to them, I fear this God. And by the way, he is the God who made all things. And they're afraid. Conditions keep getting worse. The sailors then ask Jonah what they should do to him. We're not told how much time goes by, right? But they ask, what do we need to do to you? Because you have brought this on us. What do we need to do to you to make this go away? And Jonah answers them. I mean, he effectively says, kill me. Just kill me. Throw me overboard. Then everything will calm down for you because I know this is all happening because of me. And it seems that the sailors don't want to do this. You can see this in verse 13. Because right after Jonah tells them, throw me into the sea, we read, nevertheless, the men rowed hard. Quite literally, they dug in their oars. They sought to get back to land by rowing harder against the raging sea. But of course, this is all futile. The seas keep getting rougher. So then the sailors, they call out to the Lord. It seems at this point, by verse 14, they have decided that they have no choice but to throw Jonah overboard to his death. And they pray to God. They say, don't kill us, don't hold it against us for throwing this man into the ocean. Don't count his blood to our account. Because you, Lord, have clearly done this. You've done what's pleased you. And so we're going to throw him overboard. But please... Let us not perish on account of this man's life. So they pick Jonah up and they throw him into the sea and everything calms down. It's pretty wild. Now I'm just going to go ahead and say this this morning. Next week, God willing, will be Jonah 1.17 through 2.10. There will be so many pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ that we will consider next week. I'm already excited, haven't even done the prep yet. I hope you are. And we will come back to this you know, even the imagery here of the storm being calmed and a man being down in a boat and all these kinds of things. But we're not going to spend much time on that today. The whole thing impacts these sailors, these mariners. As you would imagine it would. They feared the Lord. We see in verse 16. They've thrown Jonah in the ocean. Everything goes calm. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now notice the change in language from verse 10 to verse 16. In verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid. Here, they fear the Lord exceedingly. And as we've talked about, fear of the Lord is what? Reverence, awe. It is not something that drives away, but something that draws in. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows to him. So I, along with many others who have studied the book of Jonah, am persuaded that these sailors became worshipers of the Lord on this day. That they, too, were saved by the Redeemer through everything that took place in these events. So that's point one, just considering the narrative. Point two, try as he might, Jonah could not flee from God. Neither can we. Try as he might, Jonah could not flee from God, and neither can we. Psalm 139, a well-known text to many, reads this way, from the pen of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah could not flee from the presence of God. The Lord had searched him. He searched us. The Lord knew him completely as he knows us completely. He knows when we sit and rise, when we come and go. He knows all of our ways and all of the paths we take. And this knowledge is not simply some mental, just cognitive perception of like what is going on. He knows us deeper than that. He knows our thoughts. He knows the words that we will speak before they're even on our tongues. Such is the depth of his knowledge of us. He sees through the lies that we tell to other people and the lies we tell ourselves. He knows our hearts. He knows our desires. He knows our cravings. He knows the ways that we seek to justify ourselves. He knows the ways that we twist and manipulate the truth, whether that's in our interactions with other people or just in our own minds. He knows. We are hemmed in. What a great image. We are sewn in by the Lord's perfect knowledge of us and by the fact that he is present everywhere. There is nowhere we can go where he is not. There is nowhere we can go from his spirit. There is nowhere we can go to flee from his presence. As the psalmist says, if we ascend to heaven, you're there. If I descend to Sheol, to the realm of the dead, you're there. If on the wings of the morning, I mean, when you read Psalm 139, you cannot help but think Jonah 1. Nowhere that I can go from your presence. Even if on the wings of the morning we were able to dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, he's there. Jonah found this out. We know from his own mouth, we know that he sought to flee from the presence of the Lord because he did not want to go to Nineveh. We're not told whether he thought he could actually pull it off. Beloved, the Lord's hand is always on his people. Even when we think we can hide from the Lord in darkness, it doesn't work because the darkness is not dark to him. He sees and he knows and he's present. It was foolish for Jonah to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. It's just as foolish for us to try to do so. The only reason that Jonah undertook the attempt to flee from the presence of God was because his heart was hard. It's the only reason we would undertake it too. It is only when we have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we would ever seek to flee from God's presence. And it's only when we've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we would ever think we could. We're not told exactly what was in the mind of Jonah as all of this is going down. But I trust to Jonah at this moment, the fact that he could not flee from God's presence might have been something he resented. You ever been there? In the bad, low, hard times, we might even resent the fact that God's hand is always on us and that his presence is always with us. But beloved, hear me, in our inner man, we know better. We know better. The fact that we cannot flee, we cannot flee from God's presence, and the fact that God's hand is always on us, 
is a great comfort to the saints. We're going to come back to that. Point three. I want us to consider for a moment Jonah's answer to the sailors in verse 12. When they ask him, what should we do to you? To make this go away, let's consider what he says. Put your eyes back on verse 12. Let's just read what he says. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So what he says is true regarding the reason that the sea is so rough. It's true. But Jonah's heart is far from contrite in this. He is not repentant in this. He's not well. He knew exactly what he had done. We know this again from his own mouth in chapter 4 and verse 2. After he's angry, you know, Nineveh repents and he's angry about it. And he prays and he says, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish in the first place. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that if I went to Nineveh and preached like you told me to, you're a merciful God. You're going to spare these people and I don't want you to. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew why he was doing it. In his response to the sailors in verse 12, he's still dug in. He's like, look, just, just throw me overboard. That's, that's his reaction. That's his solution. And remember, Jonah's in the ship. The sea is incredibly rough. He doesn't know how all this is going to pan out. He doesn't know what's coming. There's no way he could have was suspected what was going to happen. In saying, throw me into the sea, he's effectively asking the sailors to just end it all by throwing him to his death. Rather than saying, you know guys, um, I said I'm a Hebrew and I said I fear the Lord, the God who made everything, um, and I've sinned against him. I've sinned against him. I have disobeyed him. I need to go to Nineveh, guys. We should turn around. Instead of saying that, dude says, just kill me. Just kill me. He's not well. His heart is hard. He's dug in in his sinful path to the extent that death seems simpler and easier than turning to the Lord in repentance. And before, we're too hard on this man. See yourself in the scripture. Where we should see ourselves in the scripture. We are like him. We have a nature like Jonah's. We have a frame and a flesh like Jonah's. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul would write words like, Oh, what wretched of a man I am. Who will deliver me? Oh, wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, I trust that as you consider Jonah and as you consider your own heart and how hard it can be, I trust it's clear that we need a deliverer who does the delivering. We need a savior who does the saving. We need a rescuer who will rescue us from ourselves. We need a savior who melts hearts of stone, who gives the gift of repentance who takes hold of us 
and then holds us fast. And thanks be to the Father, he has given us such a one. That's point three. Point four. I want us to consider God's purposes in all of this, in spite of and through Jonah's disobedience and hardness of heart. I'll say it again. I want us to consider God's purposes in all this, in spite of and through Jonah's disobedience and hardness of heart. Begin even just with the salvation of these mariners. It could be observed that these men would not have come to know the Lord if Jonah did not get on the boat. That's true enough. And we confess with the scriptures that God does not deal in hypotheticals. He deals in sovereign purposefulness and perfect wisdom. The Lord says his word. The Lord is upright and never sins. He is not the author of evil, yet he accomplishes all of his good and holy purposes, even through the sinful choices of his creatures. Such is his wisdom. Consider Jonah. He was in sin, as we've talked about. He did what seemed good to him. He did what he wanted to do. And he meant to do it. He had intentions in doing what he did. And yet, the Lord is not thwarted. He's not thwarted in anything in this book. Jonah will still end up going to Nineveh. That will happen. He will still end up preaching there. That will happen. All of that will happen in spite of his every effort to the contrary. Nineveh will still end up repenting. That will happen. And in the meantime, God is going to rescue some more saints, all while doing some significant work in the life of a prophet. Marvel, beloved, at the providence and the power and the wisdom of God. Point five. We're going to consider the Lord's relentless pursuit of his people. The Lord's relentless pursuit of his people. If you remember the sermon title from last Sunday, it was the prophet who ran away. Today's sermon title is the God who pursues. I don't make a big deal about sermon titles, but it serves our purposes right now. The Lord's pursuit of Jonah throughout this book is remarkable. The way that the Lord perseveres with his wayward prophet is remarkable. God's perseverance wholesale with all of his people throughout the scriptures is remarkable. And beloved, it is God's perseverance with us that results in our preservation. We will be sanctified. Amen? We will be glorified. Our bodies will be resurrected. We will dwell with God. We will see Christ as he is. We will eat with him. All for one reason. And one reason only. Because he will do it. He will do it. Were it not the case, we may as well go do something else. So we're wasting our time. James Montgomery Boyce, in his preaching of this book of Jonah, picks up on Philippians 1.6 and connects it to God's work in Jonah's life. Philippians 1.6 reads this way from the pen of the Apostle Paul, I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Jim Boyce says this, We must not miss this, that God is so determined to perfect his good work in us that he will continue to do so with whatever it takes, regardless even of the obedience or disobedience of the Christian. Close quote. Now, there could be several different reactions to a statement like that. A statement that I would endorse wholeheartedly. God is so determined to perfect his good work in us that he will do so with whatever it takes. Regardless of what we are bringing to the table. A few ways we could react to that. The way that I hope we react to that is that our hearts are full of gratitude. That we sit and we say, thanks be to God that that's true. The reaction to a statement like that is never, oh great, let me go send the daylights out of the thing when I leave here. Said no redeemed person ever. The saints who love God, who have become obedient from the heart, who have been set free from the condemnation of the law, who now actually delight in God's law in their inner man, yet lament the fact that we're unable to do it more than we do. The reaction of the saint when we hear that God will do whatever it takes, even when I'm disobedient, our reaction is praise be to his name. Because he will do it. We have peace. We have comfort. We have hope and a future because God is this way. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's hand is always on us, saints. That's a comfort. There's no greater comfort than to know that God's hand is always on his people. Because if you know yourself at all, in your moments of sanity, you know, if I could wreck this thing, I would wreck this thing. But because God's hand is on me, all is well. We've considered how at this point in the narrative, Jonah is not repentant. Yet God perseveres, pursues. Such is the nature of his steadfast love for his people. It is good for us to know that God's hand being on us has everything to do with our repentance. As we look at an unrepentant prophet on whom the hand of God is, he will come to repent in measure, and the only reason he will do so is because God's hand is on him. So too with you and me. God's hand on the saints brings about the repentance of the saints. Listen to these words from Psalm 32. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is writing about hiding his sin, harboring his sin, not confessing his sin. And he says, I was wasting away inside and your hand, Lord, was heavy on me. So when we harbor sin, when we hide sin, when we don't confess sin, it's heavy and it's miserable. Why? Well, I can tell you, it is not because of Satan that it's that way. It's not because of the evil one that it's that way. He would have you comfortable in your sin and misery. He would have you think that this is pretty good. The reason 
why harboring sin and hiding sin and not confessing sin, the reason it's heavy, the reason it's miserable is because God is and because God's hand is on the saints. Note what comes next in Psalm 32. After David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then the pivot. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David writes in Psalm 32, that in large measure, it was the heavy hand of God on him that brought him to repentance. It brought him to confess. And thereby, he knows forgiveness. Praise God that this is how he is with us. God did not take his hand off of Jonah. He does not take his hand off of his people. And he will not take his hand off of us. Thanks be to him for that. As we conclude our time, I want us to reflect finally here on the fact that the Lord seeks and saves his people. So he's pursued Jonah, he has persevered with Jonah through this text, and in that we can take heart because we know that he pursues us. His saving work, his plan of redemption, has always involved him coming to seek and to save the lost. He doesn't sit idly by in the heavens. God the Son took on flesh. From heaven he came and sought his people. In the work of redeeming, the saints, the Lord will not be thwarted. He is relentless. He seeks us out. He saves us. And as has been said today, he keeps us kept. He does not let his people go. We should all, may God give us grace, that we would all sit here, overcome with gratitude, to a God like this. Consider Jonah. I mean, this, this narrative is a disaster show up to this point. As is so often the case with people in the scripture. And it doesn't necessarily, I mean, track with me, I mean, it doesn't necessarily get all that much better in some ways. I mean, even once God works and repents Jonah in the belly of the fish and Jonah confesses and says true things, the man is still, in the aftermath of going to Nineveh, is still upset over the fact that God has been merciful. The takeaway there, again, is the Lord is patient. He is long-suffering. He is merciful with his people. Do not ever lose sight of that patience and that mercy and do not lose sight of the fact that in order to save us, he came from heaven in order to do it. A period of decades after Jonah's life, the northern kingdom would be conquered. It would fall to Assyria. The Assyrians would be a threat to the southern kingdom of Judah as well. We read of this in various places in the Old Testament, some very gripping words in the book of Isaiah, for example. But God in his mercy and in his providence, would spare Judah from being conquered by Assyria. But eventually, the southern kingdom would be conquered as well. Not by Assyria, but by Babylon. Many of the people of Judah, the citizens of Jerusalem, the holy city, were exiled. And roughly 200 years after Jonah, another prophet wrote, this prophet wrote from Babylon, not Jerusalem. His name is Ezekiel. And he wrote these words. He wrote these words to people who were in exile. And as you listen, listen for the fact that the Lord seeks and the Lord saves. He's relentless 
in this mission. The words of Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will rescue my flock and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Many in the room know that David was long dead when those words were written. So what on earth could it mean that God would set David up over his people? About 600 years after Ezekiel wrote those words, a man came to John to be baptized in the river Jordan. He told John that it was appropriate that he be baptized in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled. This man was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. He was tempted for 40 days. He went there, not having eaten. He's in a wasteland. Everything stacked against him. And unlike Adam before him, who had everything going for him and failed, this man succeeded. He then preached a sermon in which he said that he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he had come to fulfill them. This man was called the son of David by many. He once asked a question to the religious authorities in Israel, whose son is the Christ? And they replied that the Christ is David's son. Well, he then quoted a portion of a psalm that David himself had written where David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he asked these religious leaders, if the Christ is David's son, then how, why does David call him Lord? This son of David said things like this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He said this. Listen with Ezekiel 34 in mind. Those words of Ezekiel we just heard, listen with them in your mind. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then this man died on a cross. When he did, the earth shook, the sky was dark. The veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple complex was torn in two from top to bottom. It's no coincidence that the image on that curtain was one of cherubim with flaming swords. We remember from the garden when Adam and Eve were driven out that angels with flaming swords guarded the way to the tree of life. 
Man had no access to that tree. But when Christ died, all was accomplished. Eternal life secured by the perfect life of Jesus, by the sacrificial death of Jesus. He was buried and he laid in the tomb and on a Sunday morning he got up victorious over sin, over death, over Satan, over hell. And he led out a host of captives, the scriptures say. He established his church. He is saving his people. And he will return at the end of the age for his people. All who trust in him are united to him. All who trust in him are represented by him. And because of that union, because of that representation, all who trust in him are forgiven of all their sin. The corruption of their nature dealt with. Every evil and wicked thing said, done, thought, felt, dealt with. Those who are united to him and represented by him are counted righteous in the sight of God with that man's very own righteousness. Why did God become man? To represent men. To atone for men's sin. To accomplish man's righteousness. And he's done it all. And even though, like we confessed earlier, we've broken all of God's commands and never kept any and are inclined toward every evil thing, we are completely forgiven because of the satisfaction Christ has made for our sin. And we are totally and completely righteous in the sight of God because we've been counted with his holiness and with his righteousness. This we receive by faith. Because Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, came from heaven to save us, and because he came from heaven and sought us, pursued us, and perseveres with us, we have peace. And because he never changes, that peace is never going away. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. And God's people say, amen. Let's pray.